0: Okay, I confess, I want a new label. Nothing describes me. I'm not lesbian, bisexual, poly, pan. I am all of the things. I am a sexual human being. Oh, what? Yes! Oh, my God. Go. No shit. Bedpost Confessions is an Austin, Texas-based live show featuring smart storytelling and anonymous confessing. Stories heard at Bedpost Confessions as well as sister shows Unspoken and Confess all explore themes of humor, vulnerability, and emotional justice on varying topics. No matter the topic, the highlight of any Bedpost Productions is the participation of the audience members sharing their own secrets in the form of anonymous confessions, which are read aloud during the show.
1: It's hard to pick out the little moments in your life that have led up to the really big moments. And even the big moments become smaller moments in future stories. As things break apart, other things come together. I, I realized recently that many of, the, of my most significant moments tend to happen in April. I guess I could see this as consequential. April showers bring May flower sort of symbolism, but I'm not that kind of guy. I'm fine hearing your horoscope, but please don't read mine. April 1998. I was on the verge of graduating high school. My most vivid memory from that month is weeping in my 1987 Ford Mustang. I was weeping in my car because I was about to graduate. I had no idea what I was going to do, and I was really scared. I had an older friend staying with me in my uh, bunk bed, so I had no privacy, uh, but regardless, I didn't have a functional door for my room. It had fallen off the hinges, so all I could do was prop it up when I needed privacy. You know, when I cried or masturbated, usually both. <laughs> <clears throat> April 1999, I, find my, I found myself waiting tables in Houston, Texas, and coming to the end of my gap year. The month opened with news that my father had passed away. He was driving somewhere in Arkansas, pulled over, had a heart attack, and laid there dead for a few hours before a highway worker stopped to check on his parked car on the side of the road. He was one of the reasons I thought homelessness was a real possibility for me. I didn't know him very well. My parents divorced when I was five. By the time I was 10, he was a ghost of himself from too much alcohol and probably drugs. My limited memories of seeing him as a kid mostly involved lying on the floor of the living room with him as he took a nap. From the stories I've heard and the few memories I do have of him, it seems that he was a gentle, sweet man with severe depression and never really put his life together. He worked in an assortment of odd jobs throughout his life with short stints totally missing, probably homeless. The most exciting job I remember hearing about was his time as a carny. During that year, after high school, I spent a lot of time reading. Mostly books I was supposed to read in high school, but never did. But I also read a lot of the Beat Poets. When reading Jack Kerouac, I would slip between picturing the figure on the jacket cover and my father. They were of the same generation with similar flaws that I imagined, grew out of a shared artistic sensitivity, had odds with the masculine norms of the day. Because of the vagaries of memory, my father is part Jack Kerouac. Like a tree growing around a fence, they've become enmeshed, in my mind, clearly separate, but one warping the other. A few days before heading back home from my father's funeral, still in April, a cute redhead started working at my restaurant. She was the first girl I really liked in Houston, or at least the first girl I liked who gave me the impression that she liked me as well. She was way, way cooler than me. She had graduated from the high school of performing and visual arts. With Beyonce, yeah. Uh, She also did glamorous drugs and knew where how to buy them. The only thing I knew about drugs at the time uh, was what Nancy Reagan had told me in the 80s (laughs) and where to score some crack. April 2008. Two years after marrying that cute redhead from the restaurant, we weren't doing so well. It was... uh, It was one of the worst times in my life. I was miserable, but I didn't really know it. I'm really great at ignoring shit, but I couldn't ignore the dissatisfaction of my new wife. She prompted me to start going to therapy and we started going to couples counseling. I I also started taking antidepressants. In retrospect, it was a turning point in my life. By the following year, we were much more connected and communicative, and I was as happy as I'd ever been, maybe for the first time. April 2011, the 26th to be exact. My wife called me shortly after I got to work that day and told me that she thought she might be in labor, but wasn't sure. I was happy to have an excuse to leave work, so I jumped back in the car and headed home, you know, just in case. We took our time getting ready for the hospital, unsure if that was really where our day would even take us. But around 2.30 p.m., after a relaxing and calm day, my wife came out of the bathroom and exclaimed, Oh my God, I think he's coming, and got on all, in the, all fours in the living room. <laughs> a few minutes later, when I tried to help her up so we could get to the car, she said, No, don't touch me. But not like that. It was about two octaves below her speaking voice, and her head spun around completely. <laughs> It was very, very clear that I needed to follow her direction, but I wasn't sure what to do. So I called our doula and and instead asked her, what was the protocol in such a situation? She she politely suggested I call the ambulance. Hmm, I agreed. After the paramedics arrived, I still had no idea what to do. I felt compelled to boil water and gather towels. but I was told not to do it. It wasn't necessary. So after several minutes of assessment, the paramedics finally loaded my wife into the back of the ambulance. I was told I couldn't sit in the back, but I could sit up in the front with the driver, Billy. To which one paramedic said, Billy, Billy's driving. Great, he's a horrible driver. Not the ideal thing to hear from your urgent care team. Despite Billy's reputation, we arrived safely to the hospital, and Oliver was born eight minutes after we settled into the birthing room. It was great. April 2015, nearly a year ago now. My wife told me she was moving out. We'd been back in couples counseling for several years, basically since the newborn baby honeymoon phase had worn off. We'd already been trying an in-home separation, which is exactly what it sounds like and isn't as ineffective as you're thinking. I moved to the guest room and we tried to negotiate our lives as as if we were not married, but living in the same house like roommates and taking shifts parenting our, our child. This has been as hard as anything in my life. My marriage is over. I'm repeating the sins of my father. In the aftermath, I often feel like I did in 1998, weeping in my Ford Mustang. Though now I have a door in my bedroom so I can cry and masturbate in privacy. (laughs) I was five when my father left. My son is now four. When I think about my five-year-old self, I see Oliver's face instead. And I'm overcome with a a sadness that wells up from the pit of my stomach and lodges itself in the back of my throat. I won't be like my father. I've gotten my life together. Uh, carnival isn't going to be an option for me. <laughs> but I am scared. I'm scared that I won't be the father I, I want to be and the one that Oliver deserves. That I don't know how because no one has ever shown me One month after she moved out, I came across the Typewriter Rodeo. It's a group that brings their manual typewriters to events and writes poem, poems on demand on a, based on a phrase, a word, or a thought. So I walked up and said, I'm going through a separation. I'd like a poem about that. What I got was the best thing anyone has yet to say to me in the wake of all this. Here's the poem. It's titled Separating. Coming together and breaking apart. This happens to a lot of things in life. Though when it happens to yourself, it can be a bit of a shock until you realize that breaking apart, busting something wide open, is like creating a rip in the sky. And what you thought was finite, what you thought had a ceiling, is suddenly open and stretching wide and moving forward into a new divide. Thank you.
0: Bedpost Confessions is produced by Julie Gillis, Mia Martina, and Sadie Smythe. Audio production is by Ian Danskin. Confess with us at bedpostconfessions.com. Until next time, we will leave you with a few other confessions from the audience. I confess, I'm embarrassed by how many life decisions I've made as an adult based on 80s movies. (laughs) Did I write that? Chiefly. Chiefly, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, <laughs> Real Genius, and Short Circuit. Oh, I want to talk to you after the show. No. <laughs> I confess, how does one break into the Polly scene? I miss sex, but I don't want a serious relationship right now. <laughs> I would Google Polly Austin. <laughs> well, I would. Or, or hook up, Austin, or Tinder, or Grinder or what are there other, Inders, Inders out there?